0: Hola, and welcome to episode 23 of Word to Your Mama. Today we have Joseph Patel, a.k.a. Jazzbo, a.k.a. Jazzbeasy. He is producer of Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Cannot Be Televised, which is Questlove's directorial debut. This amazing documentary won was the winner of the Grand Jury Prize and Audience Award at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival Awards. Jazzbo is also former writer DJ and member of Soul Sides, Yeah former creative director and producer at Fader, Vivo Vice and NTV. This is a great conversation. We get to catch up, figure out how long we've known each other, which is minimum 20 plus years. Um we get to talk about, you know, what part of the process was he attached to this amazing doc Summer of Soul, which I had the honor and the pleasure of seeing as it opened the Sundance Film Festival, which is a huge honor. So I got to see that. Um, so we talk about that experience. We talk about how, you know, failure, how it's impacted his career and creative process. And he gets, you know, real real honest about some, you know, part of his path in the beginning, we also have questions from the audience from B Plus and Mona Lisa and some exclusive news regarding the Contact High project. It was great reconnecting and, and building with the Jazz because he's such an amazing person. He's contributed so much and helped open so many doors for so many people. And he's just good peeps, man, good peeps. It really... Especially, we recorded this in, I think it was late Feb, so it was just good for the soul. So, enjoy. It works. It works.
1: Yeah. Old school. <laughs> yeah. How it's are you, man? You. Uh, I'm good. It's really good to see you.
0: It's really good to see you, and I was just thinking, when I was prepping for this call, I was like, this has turned out to be a blessing for me, because I'm just reaching out to all my homies and it's a way to catch up, but also like let other people know about your shit. And, and, you know, and we have convos and if there's time left, convos after when we stop recording or whatever, like, you know, just like it's reconnecting with motherfuckers. It's, it's been really, really great. So that's awesome. Thanks for, for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate it. I know you're busy, but how's it on an NYC man? like, like we're hitting a year on this fucking pandemic, and it's it's is it still snowing out there? Or what's the what's the situation? It, it was
1: yeah, it was snowing. It's it's weird. It's um, uh, the pandemic was mentally and physically manageable until winter for I me. Bet. And winter, like in the spring, in the summer, in the fall, I could go outside. I could get air. I could go for walks. We could run errands. I could see people distanced winter you're just stuck indoors and I'm fortunate where I live in a nice place in a nice neighborhood but like when the when the cold gets there and the snow and it's just it's so the last few months have been really mentally tough for getting through the, the pandemic days I and um you know for me like being able to exercise is really good for my mental health so that that's sort of been dis disjointed. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've obviously had a, uh, a very blessed last few weeks um, with, with the movie, but, uh, but just it's, it's everything else has been really hard. So I'm really looking forward to getting past winter. Hopefully vaccines are going out.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and, you know, being able to come on the other side of this season, with a little bit more freedom. I miss seeing people. I miss running into people.
0: I know. I saw your tweet today. <laughs> like, and Questlove was like, I miss avoiding people.
1: <laughs> yeah, he would. He would. He's always in demand. But, like, it's just, it really, like, I really, the part of the kinetic energy of New York City is being out in the streets and running into people you know and the serendipity of it all. And yeah. and that's that's been gone for a long time. And, and you know, what I realized is that, um, you know, New York, you have to sort of mentally train yourself to live here, yeah and and physically train yourself to live here in the sense that, like, you know, a year ago, I was getting up in the morning, stretching because I'm old, oh, going, to, that old. Going, going to the gym, <laughs> coming back, eating breakfast, showering, hopping on the train, getting to the office by nine thirty. And and I I I don't I it, I couldn't do that right now if you put a gun to my head like I wouldn't be able to do that yeah and and it, it took years to get that sort of precision down that flow. And it's all it's all gone in a year like
0: so for people who may or may not know like you're born and raised on the west coast
1: I am born on the east coast but I was raised on the west coast
0: oh where were you born I didn't know that you were born in the, in the I was east born
1: coast born in Pennsylvania oh. And- and lived in Massachusetts till I was about five and my parents then moved to California, which is essentially, you know, raised me in Northern California, the Bay. Yeah. And Yeah. yeah and then, um, and then about 22 years ago, 22 years ago, next month.
0: <sighs> I was um, going to ask how long has it been?
1: Yeah, 22 years next month. Shit. Yeah.
0: Cause I think of you and I think of you of East coast just cause you've been there for so long. And then I have to be reminded of, you know, I met you on the west coast. You're over here. Your history and your contributions to the culture that started out out west.
1: Yeah, yeah, in the early 90s like and it's funny because that I've been here longer as an adult than I was as an adult in the bay. Wow. But I still think of myself as from the bay.
0: Of course, right?
1: And okay. and that's that is that part of me I still hate New York sports teams. <laughs>
0: oh, really? I, so you haven't converted? You haven't ooh. gone full blow?
1: <laughs> no, and I, you know, I still still root for the Niners and the Warriors and the A's, and like oh God, you know, it just God. it's just funny. Like I, you know, I, I guess it 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 it's not honest to say that I I always thought my stay in New York was going to be temporary, but but I always thought you know New York is where I sort of found my groove. Um, but it, it, I've always considered myself as a visitor in New York, partly. Um, and you know, home is always, my parents are still on the West coast. Mm, My sister's there. So, you know, Bay is always home.
0: So what, at what year out of the 22 years where you're like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm, you know, my heart's over there in West coast, but I'm a New Yorker. I got this. Like I got the rhythm. I got the. I got my little things going on. I'm at peeps, and you know, like when did that hit?
1: I mean, when when I moved to New York, I it was instantly at it moved at a speed that I was looking for, right? So I instantly felt a part of the mix. But they always say Colson Whitehead, uh, writer, had a book out after 9/11. The uh, name t- title of which escapes me now, but he said. Uh, he wrote this thing, and I'm paraphrasing: is, you know, New York. You become a New Yorker when you remember what used to be there.
0: Mm, oh yeah, when right. you're like, <laughs> when yeah. you're like looking at Times Square and you're like, it's too clean, or da 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 da.
1: Yeah. Or even just like the corner. Oh, that used to be the bodega, or that used to be the yeah. bagel spot, and it's not that anymore. That's when you become a New Yorker. <laughs> and and I really like that because it, it's it's. You know, I think it was that first after a few years of living in New York, like three or four years, where it was like, um, you know, obviously I moved here pre nine eleven, and then nine eleven happened, mm. and that was instantly like you're a New Yorker then. Yeah. Um, but even before that, like it was just sort of like, oh, things were changing in the neighborhood I lived in, and you know, it, it, yeah. So so it pr- pretty quickly, but. Um, you know, it's sort of like, it's like a, it's like an arc, right? Like yeah. I, I, I was like sort of ascending in New York and then I, and then the last few years have been like, I miss the Bay, you know, I miss my home, I miss my family. So.
0: So, um, so I was thinking, uh, you know, you're a film TV uh, producer, director and all this stuff like that. And you're a writer. That's how I met you. So I was trying to think of like how we met each other, like, For me, correct me if I'm wrong, I met you when I was part of the crew that was putting together the Art Speaks, right? The Art Speaks, that was like 2001, I believe. So at that time, you were already in New York?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I I think it was Art Speaks 2000 or 2001 because it might have been 2000.
0: It might have been 2000. I know it was like, I think it was like January or something like that. I'll look it up and I'll put it in the show notes, but yeah.
1: It's funny because I remember, B plus Brian Cross uh, at Art Speaks had a little photo booth that thing he was doing in the alley right next door or something, and and he sent me recently a photo a photo he took of me in that in that little uh, Irving Penn like uh, gallery yeah Uh yeah and like and what's funny is um at that time I I remember it vividly I do I do think that's when we met in person I do think we knew each about each other beforehand because you were always in the mix. And I think that sort of herb community, obviously. But I remember going to Art Speaks. I had a dot-com job, and I went out there with John Caramonica, and Jeff Chang was meeting us down there, and Oliver Wang was there. And it was just like, you know, little writer's crew. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, I just, you know, L.A. is funny. I've never lived in L.A., but I obviously have a lot of extended family in LA. For sure. Uh, you know, um, a lot of friends that I've made from my writing days. Um, that LA always felt like a second home. That way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was that. That's that. I think that is when we met.
0: Like for in person. Yeah, you're right. I think you're right. And then, like, I met a lot of amazing people through that experience. I just like moved up to LA and was like in that activist like hip hop scene and then you know I was able to reach out to a lot of people. I think I was working rec- I think that's when I was also working with Frank Sosa so like I was like yeah. hitting up a bunch of people and meeting like who are the you know who are the tastemakers up in this scene and it was yeah. fascinating and it was like I don't know it was just like people were like oh you're moving to LA, LA sucks it's so plastic and I was just like I don't know I am I was like hella fortunate to get into this scene because then I was able to, to connect with like a rainbow of people that were that loved music loved the culture were creatives and all that stuff and i was like these are my people like this is it like this is the core and it really shaped me but yeah
1: well actually wait, where, where did you move from
0: from san diego and then i oh, went to no. long beach state and then i moved up to, up further north to la proper
1: you know what it is about that community what you're talking about is um it's it's not just people who love music, right? Everyone loves music, but it was a community of people that understood that the music was coming from people who lived in communities that needed tending and 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 recognizing, and yeah. it was it was a little deeper than just loving music, right? Yes,
0: for sure.
1: And 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 that's why it felt like community is it was, um, you know, uh, all that stuff going on. Uh, in l a, especially, was stuff I fell in love with when I lived in the bay. and and it was what was exciting about it is it was it was a community. it was it was it was it was more than just artists. It was just like a, a, a you know, everyone around the artists. Mm-hmm. All, everyone lived in the same neighborhoods. They all lived, you know, it was just like every, it was cool. It, yeah. it felt like community, yeah,
0: yeah. and it was this was pre, you know, social media where, you know, you you connected on you know maybe kind of emails a little bit but it was like phone calls (laughs) you know like it was like really connecting and taking time out to connect with each individual person and stuff but it was it didn't matter where you were in California or New York it was like this mutual respect and like it, it, it was it was a really a great feeling and I was I think we talked about it I think I posted a picture or something like that about Art Speaks and I was like fuck 20 years, 22 years later, whatever, like we're still fucking talking about the same it was police brutality, that was what it was for. Um but yeah, magical night, magical night. Um
1: Also, how Frank Sosa?
0: I don't I don't know, like I reached out to him cuz I want to have him on here because he's a huge part of my story, you know, and the evolution of of shit. So <clears throat> I mean, I know that he's up in the Bay again. He's been up in the Bay for a while and uh, I think he's doing photography and stuff now.
1: He is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We just we haven't spoken or traded DMs or anything, but we started following each other on Instagram oh, a few months ago. Yeah, and I think he's up in Oakland. He's got family.
0: Yeah, he's got family and stuff like that. So. um yeah, man. So I definitely I reached out to him just the other day. Actually, I was like, yo, oh, yeah, cool. I can't talk. I can't talk about my tribe without you, dude. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so much has like when I, you know, first moved up here and shit. Uh, but speaking of B plus Brian Cross, who I like to think of kind of like more than a photographer, a cultural historian, if you will. Um, I also think of you. I was like, well, you know, you. What, what you do, what you've done, I think what a lot of people that I have on as guests on here, it's like the non-linear career path. But I think that's kind of common for a lot of us creatives, right? We don't just do one thing. Like, you're not just a photographer. You're not just a director a writer. Da, 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 like, you're a creative. And overall umbrella is storyteller. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I was thinking. I I'm just started reading this book and I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called it's by Dr. Sarah Lewis. Um, it's called The Rise Creativity, The Gift of Failure and the Search of Mastery.
1: Mm. I don't and, know it.
0: Um, and she, I just started reading it, like today. And she's um, she's Harvard University Department of History, Art and Architecture and the Department of African and, um, and African-American Studies. And she talks about, you know, that she rarely uses—it says failure in the title, but she rarely uses failure in the book because she feels like failure as a word is really imperfect because it was created in the 19th century to talk about, like, financial institutions, like bankruptcy and shit. She's like, it doesn't really speak to, like, the human experience. Um, And that, like, once you talk about failure, what we think about failure, that it's— it no longer is a static concept, right? Like it evolves because you come out of it and you say like, oh well, I learned something or I did da. As a creative, as a storyteller, as someone that's done so many different types of things, how do you feel failure has impacted your your career and your creative process as a storyteller? <clears throat>
1: it's so not not a small question. <laughs> um I mean I, you know everyone fails at something, right? And I think you know those people that say, "Oh, you know, keep going no matter what people tell you." But it's like that's not helpful either. Because <laughs> sometimes you're just not cut out for shit and <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, you know, I think failure is is only a negative if you don't learn from it. Yeah. And and so I think, you know, m- most people who are creatives fail at something. Yeah. Um, and failure is a great teacher. It teaches you a lot if you allow it to. And so failure has really driven me in that, like, you know, when I was a when I was a writer, well, I mean, look, I'll I'll be real. Like, my first really taste with with failure failure was my relationship with Soul Sides, mm. uh, right? So I was I was in college and found my sort of tribe there with Jeff Chang and DJ Shadow and Black Alicious and Lyrics Born and Lateef. We started a label, Soul Sides. Um, me and Jeff were the only two non-musicians. Um, but we started this collective and we sort of bought into this idea of this crew, right, which is a really good feeling to have. Um, and I and I failed at that. Like I I was being caught between what my parents expectations of me were as a child of immigrants, what I was at school to do. And this allure of of starting a record label where I wasn't actually going to make any money and earn a living off of independent being a non-musician on an independent record label. <laughs> yeah. And it was exciting, it was fun, it was incredible, but I failed them and subsequently had to leave the crew. And it was really it still is something that teaches me to this day.
0: And what do you mean when you say that you failed them?
1: I mean, it, I, it's a little I mean it's many years ago, but you know, I wasn't I wasn't quite the team player that I should have been. Got it. I was I wasn't looking out for the goals of the crew, and for a lot of reasons, like partly as I didn't understand what my role was, partly was um, you know when people are telling you to do something without explaining why to do something, you sort of you know in your youth you get you get rebellious. You're (laughs) like, "Well, well fuck you, I'm not gonna do that. You're telling me to like, bring me in. And, and it's, so it's like, you know, so it was just goofy shit like that, that you learn from. Yeah. And, and I, and I learned, right. I learned a lot from that. And, and then as a writer freelancing for magazines and then, you know, ultimately moving to New York and, you know, as I, I failed at freelancing, right. Just I couldn't, I, I love writing. I love writing for magazines. I loved seeing my name in print, loved spending time with artists and getting to talk to people about the artistic process. Um, And, but I wasn't earning enough to live in New York city. Mm
2: -hmm. And,
1: and so, you know, I, I then had to find like a, a job, like a real job, but I was fortunate enough to find one uh, at MTV that I could, you know, learn and grow from. But, um, but yeah, failure is such a good teacher if you allow it to teach you. Yeah. Um, because you know, you're always going to fail. Um, but if you don't learn from it, then, then you're going to keep making the same mistakes as opposed to new mistakes. And, and I think it's important to keep, you know, you, 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 you won't get anywhere. Very few people get anywhere without making mistakes. Yeah. Um, so I think that's been the biggest lesson for me.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I just said the creative process. It's like, you know, the level of how large a, a, a quote unquote failure is can change the trajectory. You know what I'm saying? Like, I always say, like, you're at a, uh, sometimes you're just at a, something happens, you're at a, like a fork in the road, you know, and you could either go these two ways. And it's, re- that's the defining moment when you're at that failure. Like, is this, like, is this really like, Am I failing just because I'm, I'm good at this, but I'm just failing in the process? Or, or am I, like, gassing myself up and being like, I'm hella good at this shit, but yeah. I, this is the time to wrap it up. But yeah. let this be the the teacher to be like, oh, well, maybe I'm not, like, you're, like, soul side, like Maybe, like, I'm not the, the, you know, the the label person. I'm not the freelancer, but I can still do this in this context and and, and be successful. And learn and grow, and then like you, because of all those things, and like that you consider yourself to be failures. I mean, we are here now, and let's talk about this amazing movie <laughs> that you were like. Tell me about. I didn't know everything about it, but you were saying like someone that that I love and and respect so much that you were going to interview for it, and then you open. You you get in Sundance. You Premiere it, which is an honor in itself And then Win Mad Awards Let's talk about that Let's talk (laughs) about your role in this Because I have questions So tell the people what I'm talking about What I'm hyped about right now
1: So I just finished producing uh, My first feature documentary Called Summer of Soul Or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised And it is uh, directed by Amir Questlove Thompson Uh, I produced it um along with a couple other people um who had acquired this footage of a concert that took place in 1969 in Harlem the the Harlem Cultural Festival um and you know it featured Stevie Wonder and Nina, Nina Simone and the Staple Singers and Sly and the Family Stone and Mahalia, Mahalia Jackson and Max Roach and Abbey Lincoln and all these people um at a particularly tumultuous time in Harlem's history, in America's history. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of these things that happened, drew 300,000 people to a free show in the park across six weekends. Uh, and no one remembers it. And And even when I was told about this project, I was like, "No, this didn't happen," <laughs> and then they're like, "No, it happened," and and some guy shot it, and I'm like, "Well, it's probably like one camera and it's shitty footage," <laughs> and it's like, "No, it's four cameras and it sounds amazing," and you're just like, "Yeah," and you're like, "Well, why don't we know about this?" So, so I got approached about this project about two and a half years ago, and um, you know, once I saw the footage, I was like, "Oh man," and you know, we, this, yeah, yes, I, I want to do this, but Amir directing, and I've known Questlove for 25 <laughs> years. And I was like, there's no, I said, there's no way he's going to end up direct, being able to direct this. He doesn't have the time. I, this sounds like a lot of work. I'm I'm going to, I'm not going to do it. And then, and then are like, just meet with Amir. And so I met with Amir and he's like, no, no. I'm like, you're not going to have time <laughs> to do this. And he's like, no, he's like, you know, he's like when i commit to something i want to do it he's like i may not have the time like a normal director might have the time but that's why i need a strong producer to work with and so i thought about it and i and i said yes and and i had to get to a place where you know for me it was like i've done a lot of cool shit in my life and in my career they're kind of one in the same right um and but but I don't have the thing like you know that if I met someone on a plane, I could point to you and say I do this, you know I produce and I direct. Well, what have you produced and directed? And I, you know I did a short film for the Fader. What's the Fader? And like you know what I mean? Like I just it's not like,
0: Universal. It's not Universal.
1: Yeah, like like it's cool shit, but it's it's relatively niche, and I'm proud of it. But I didn't have the big thing on a scale of a feature. So I I got to a place where I'm like okay I, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna kill it because I want to do more of it, and and I'm glad I did. <laughs> I I'm really proud of it. Um, it it got selected. We finished the film in November of 2020. Um, we were in the middle of shooting when the pandemic hit. So mm. we that was we had a last set of interviews to do at the end of March that we had to cancel and um, uh, went into the edit, figured out a way to edit virtually or remotely. Um, And then we waited out coronavirus for a few months to figure out how to shoot the remaining interviews in a safe way. Summer and spring allowed for that, outdoor shooting, remote shooting. Finished it, submitted it to Sundance at the end of summer, rough cut. Um, They not only selected it, they selected it for opening night
0: Staying competitive in these dynamic times means having the right technology at work for your small or medium-sized business. Whether your goal is to grow, downsize, or modernize, Panoply BPO provides the right combination of tools, support, and affordability necessary to make it a reality. Visit panoplybpo.com. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y B-P-O to schedule your no-obligation consultation today. Mention WTYM and get your 13th month of service for free. PanoplyBPO.com. There is a better way.
1: Then it goes on to win Grand Jury Prize and Audience Award, which is rare for a film to to get both. And then a week later, we, you know, becomes the highest selling documentary out of Sundance, which is.
0: Congrats. Felicidades. That's amazing. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And so, like, it's just been a really incredible last few weeks. But more than anything, the thing that is really fulfilling to me um, is I know we made a good film. And after that first night it premiered, uh, when the reviews started coming in, uh, formal reviews from critics at all the major news outlets, Twitter reviews, friend reviews. Who I know people had seen it. Everyone loved it, and not only did they love it, but they were seeing and feeling what we hoped they would see and feel.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's an incredible feeling as a creative. I've never experienced that before. You know that yeah. the, the people are seeing and feeling the film in the way that you hope that they would, and. And that is intoxicating more than anything else. It's just um, at one point, Amir's manager Zara was like, because the production company was sending us, you know, press press breaks, uh, a roundup of all the press that was coming out as it was coming out. At some point the next day, like after the premiere, she's like, "Are they only sending us the positive reviews?" And I'm like, <laughs> no, like, these are all the reviews. They just have to all be positive. Like, it's just an incredible feeling.
0: Uh, amazing, dude, and to. <clears throat> You, like, you gave me a little snippet into what you were doing um, in, in 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 like, a very important interview that finally happened that's a huge part of the movie, and then I see that you got into Sundance. Amazing. And then I was like, oh, shit, your shit is sold out, premiering, da-da-da-da. So I was like, hey, do you think they're going to release—you gave me the awesome heads up that they're going to release a couple of tickets, um— I don't know if I told you this, but I was sitting here when you told me and I was on my computer like, holy shit. Like, you know how like you're trying to get <laughs> those tickets like. Da, 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 da. So I was like going like this as people can't see me if they're if they're only listening to this. I was kind of like biting my thumbnail, you know, as one does. Uh. Sometimes you just saw <laughs> I broke my foot. Fu- I chipped my tooth. <laughs> but I got a ticket. Okay. <laughs> so I got a ticket. So I and then also I love panels q a's all that shit so i was like i get to go to sundance for the first time ever you know oh. uh virtually so i was there and then got to see the amazing panel afterwards and i was like what the fuck like so um, so amir Questlove got on i know i'm in the panel like some people had the footage for a while then he got on how long after he was on were you did you get onto the project
1: a couple months. A
0: couple of oh, months. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was like, and I remember like they had the, the Q and a, the Q and a afterwards with you guys and we can say, and I was just like, what the fuck about this audio? Like, how was it preserved? Yeah. Like the, the visual, the, the, you know, the visuals of it, like is amazing as well. But like the audio, of course, it's going to be on point if it's you guys, like, but what you guys had to work with was like yeah. quality already
1: yeah i mean it's um it's so so the film itself is not just a concert film it's a concert film but also the story of harlem in 69 Mm -hmm. black community in 69 and um you know people will be able to see the movie this summer uh it'll be released in theaters and outdoor theaters and, and, and hulu as well perfect um and you know, it's a very communal viewing experience. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's there is a lot of music in there, and so so that was really important for us to to be able to provide a way for people to see it together. Which I think coming out of coronavirus, hopefully this summer we're in a much better place. I think that's going to be a real tonic. Yeah, been through. Um, but the footage itself, you know, we tell a little bit of the story in the film. It's it's a a, a local promoter named Tony Lawrence. Have been doing this Harlem Cultural Festival for a couple years. and um, you know, the city was really interested in placating unrest in Harlem specifically. Um, they were, hey, let's well, we'll we'll do some shows in the summer of sixty nine because we don't want riots like there were in sixty eight. Whatever their motivations were, there's a mayor of New York City at the time, John Lindsay um and then and then a tv producer was like well if all this talent's going to be assembled we should shoot it because i can make some tv shows and we can we can sell the tv shows and make a lot of money and do more of these because he was he he was like a variety show tv director mm. and so they all all these sort of factors came together to 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 put on this festival maxwell house came on board as a sponsor because and one of the first companies Big general foods product pro, products that recognized that the black community was a was a was a demographic to market to, um, so all these things came together to throw this festival. And uh, you know Hal Tolchin the TV producer, he he put his own money up to shoot this, and and he did a great job. It's very you know he shot it on videotape, which is in '69 of an advanced technology. The 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 tape are in these big cases um two inch real cases tiffany blue two inch real cases they weigh about 20 to 25 pounds each
2: um
1: but what but after the festival he he couldn't sell the tv show no one wanted to buy a black show no one wanted to buy no one regarded this event no one publicized it really um woodstock happens the same summer and that gets all the publicity and and he tried to sell it for a few years after, and no one was really buying it. So he kept this footage in his basement, always with plans to do something with it, but it just, the opportunities never really materialized. And then um, about 10 or 12 years ago, you know, this, uh, my co producer, Robert Fivalent, um, you know, this footage has started to gain some like legend status in, yeah. in archival communities. And he had heard about it, and he went to Hal Tuchin, and you know was very persistent, and got the rights to it, and then took it to a couple of places to make make the film. But you know, music film is really hard to make, the rights and clearances. And oh yeah,
0: I'm sure. No
1: one really knew what to do with this, and there was a few people, different people attached to it at different times, and you know, at at some point, he he got it about three years ago to Radical Media in New York. Um, the guy at Radical is my old boss at MTV. Um, I was doing some development work with them at the time and they you know they they, they, they decided we should get a, a director like Amir attached he's never directed before but you know he, he's a storyteller a musicologist um, you know once that deal was done they came to me and they were like you know Dave Srolnik the EP over at Radical he was like you know Amir right and I was like yeah I've known him for a very long time he's like you know would you be interested in working on this and that's that's how it all started, and and the biggest challenge was getting this footage transferred off these reels. Mm, I bet. 2 two-inch videotape machines don't exist anymore, and it took me about a month and a half, almost two months, to find the right place to to restore this footage. And the thing about the videotape is that some of it is moldy. Uh, the other thing is in the videotape um, cases they have like uh stickers on the in, inside of the cases and and the over 50 years the, the glue from the adhesive oh. of the sticker leaked down into the tapes Ooh. so we had to like bake the tapes and like but, but for the most part it they were in good shape because they they weren't exposed to air and they weren't exposed moved around a lot so nice. they were in good shape and and the you know he had the foresight to shoot four cameras um he had the foresight to do uh Two decks simultaneously recording, so he he could fake a stereo mix. And sometime in the future, um, wow, it was it was it's tremendous. It's for me the opportunity to work on this film a lot. Aside from a lot of personal reasons, was was also like how many how many times in your career in your life as a storyteller do you have the chance to tell the story of something that will forever put it down on the cultural timeline?
2: Yeah,
1: like we will. We after this movie comes out, people will no longer think of '69 is just the summer of Woodstock. No, they'll remember this festival now. For and, sure. And, and, and part we... of the story... go ahead. Sorry. I said part of the story too that that we talk about in the film is examining why people don't remember this festival, why it was laid forgotten for so long, and 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 the the chance to correct that is really was was very alluring to me.
0: Yeah, I I love how you guys. You know, you coming from as a producer, coming from as a writer, like coming from the culture. Quest being, you know, I I have a way better understanding of his musicologist title because I've been listening to all of the Quest Left Supremes during the uh, the lockdown, and just like he's so him and his whole entire crew are so knowledgeable and everything. But him being a magician, uh, a magi- magician, a musician, <laughs> a DJ the timing it's all about timing and rhythm and I think only you guys are able to do this and do it in a way that's successful that's uh illuminating uh like there's parts of this where I'm just thinking how like it's kind of like the uh hidden figures moment like Word like that's a significant fucking thing that happened that these ladies contributed to something and we're just finding out about this shit. Now, the same thing happened. Like I got there's points where I got teary eyed and super emotional, especially like some of these performances, because you're like, if you know anything, if you're especially if you're a person of color, you're just like, yo, this was this could have gone Where No one would ever see this, and only the people that attended, the 300,000 people that attended took this to the death, and no one would know about this. The Nina Simone fucking—I was, like, transfixed, and I was telling all my friends, I was like, yo, I can't wait for you to see this shit. Like, that was a— all, a lot of those performances were like cultural shifts and cultural moments and how you guys talked about that, even just looking at the fashion within yeah. within the crowd and stuff like that. But one also, another part of the movie that you guys did such a great job um, is, you know, you guys are saying that it was before, you know, a couple of days before Woodstock and then also the landing on the moon and they're interviewing people and doing that with the music. And I was just like, yo, this is a visual representation of what i think what jill scott Heron wrote whitey on the moon (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i mean what what was really interesting is you know we made a very conscious decision in the film to the summer of 69 there's a lot of things happening right there's a lot of uh, the, the man lands on the moon. Woodstock is happening. A year earlier, MLK is assassinated. Um, you know, there's uprisings everywhere across the country. A um, few years before, the, you know, 69, was also when Bobby, or 68 is also when Bobby Kennedy dies. And, you know, someone who, a real heavyweight political ally for a civil rights struggle. Yeah. Um, you know, a few years before MLK dies. And it's, it's um, what we made a conscious decision to, to, show those events that people are familiar with, but from a Black perspective. So we used Black archival sources wherever we could. Um, you know, there's a show called Black Journal that starts in 68. And, you know, 69 is really this mainstreaming of Black power consciousness. And not just Black power consciousness. You, you, you see this really the beginning of the formations of the Rainbow Coalition. Yeah. Right? So you're seeing the Young Lords and you're seeing... Um, you know, the white workers party and you're seeing, um, you know, all these different coalitions starting to come together. And it's, it's really, um, you know, so these, so part of what we hope the film achieves uh, is to show these events that you think of one way, but show them from a black perspective to understand that it wasn't regarded the same way by those communities.
0: You guys were successful in that shit for sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it was, you know, it, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I'm you know, I don't wanna to talk too much about the movie because people haven't seen it yet, so yeah, yeah. Um, we'll do this again when when people when it's out out <laughs> yeah, but but, but, you know, i hope i'm very I'm incredibly proud of what we made as yes, as, a, should. as a film and I really am over the moon that people loved it, people who saw it loved it. I hope it's the a beginning of a very long journey for this film, and um, and more importantly than anything, I hope people uh, l- love it and learn from it and take the lesson of these stories need to be told. Because can you imagine the impact this would have had on the culture had people understood that it happened and it was celebrated the same way Woodstock was celebrated? Yeah. Like like it it, it the people we we talked to people who were at the festival and we bookend the film with a with a guy. I'll tell this one story. It's really great. We, we book on the, the, the film with the guy who was five years old when the festival happened. Mm-hmm. And when we found him, he was like, you know, he's like, I was five. And we were like, okay. Um, you know, in my head, I'm like, he's five. What does he what do you remember? And no one has seen this footage. So none of this footage, a little bit of Sly leaked like 10 years ago. And a little bit of Nina was in that Nina Simone doc a few years back. But no one's seen anything else. Like it's never it, never, it never leaked out anywhere. This, this, this. When we did our pre-interview with this guy, Musa Jackson, the the performance that moved him was the Fifth Dimension, who in '69 is the biggest artist in the world, right? They're 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 Billy Eilish and Dua Lipa mixed <laughs> in one in '69, and and he remembered. I said, "What do you remember about the festival?" And he he told me the story. His his mother's boyfriend took him and his brother to the park because it was just down the street. And he remembers they were giving out balloons at the edge of the park. And there were all these, like, food vendors. And, you know, we went digging in the archives and we found all these photos of food vendors around the park during the festival and kids getting balloons and and stuff that hadn't been digitized before. So we were like, okay. I was like, okay. And then... And then he was like, I remember the Fifth Dimension. He remembered what they were wearing. He remembered what they performed. He was, and I was just like, how does he, he there's no way he, he could be misremembering. Yeah. Because this hadn't been seen by anybody. He knew the color of their outfits and that they had tassels on. And I was just like, wow. And then we interviewed him and it was it was a great interview. And then we showed him the footage at the end of the interview. And he starts tearing up. He's yeah. crying. He's like, he's like, Oh my God, and what was profound was that he, it validated to him these memories he's been carrying for his entire life, that People thought he was crazy or that he 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 had been carrying these memories with them. So think of that on a sort of cultural level scale.
2: Yeah.
1: Which yeah. Is if this if this festival had been celebrated the way and remembered in, by history in the way that Woodstock had been, what could that have done for not only the people who are there, but the artists who performed and, you know, the sort of reverberations ever after. Um, so that's why I think it's important to tell these stories like. This film, like Hidden Figures, a dramatized version, obviously. Yeah. Um, it, it, there's, there's just so many more important stories to tell, and I'll never get tired of people telling them.
0: Amazing. So I just want to say thank you again for this film. I, I want everyone to see it if you could see it when it comes out and it's safe and you can see it outside. I mean I, I'll see it again to see it with other people, you know, because I was by myself and I was like, who who's I was trying to tell everybody like who could be down to let's watch it, you know, and stuff like that. But they couldn't get tickets. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to watch this shit. And I was just after watching it, I was like texting a bunch of friends because I told them I was like this movie did it. And I saw it and I was like, dude, I was like Black people have contributed so much to not just the United States, to the fucking world. You know what I'm saying? And for so many different reasons that we all know, it's like it keeps getting suppressed and suppressed and suppressed. And so shit like this is amazing. So thank you. I can't wait for everyone and their mother to see and to see you on Twitter and just seeing the people that you admire and respect, you know, and that they're— not regurgitating but telling you back what you hope the film to to convey to people it's just gorgeous it's gorgeous and beautiful and awesome and i'm so happy for you you. so proud it's just like good people doing good shit contributing (laughs) to the culture and also another theme that we have on here is that the people i have on here is that hip-hop we didn't grow we didn't grow out of hip-hop like some people did Hip hop is all—it's a huge part of us. It's—it's it's in my blood. It's in my veins. It's in my DNA, right? I was just telling my homeboy Woes, who I have on—I think episode, uh, one or two episodes before you—is like, I don't know if you watch Wandavision, but it's like <laughs> we went, we've gone through, you know, her dome, and we've been changed on a cellular level where it's part <laughs> of us. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it kind of dictates everything that we do, and. I feel like it's the same for you. It's taken you so many places. And you've, you know, the. I remember you asked me to do something. I don't think it was ever used, but it was awesome that you reached out for um, My Block. Was that what it was called? (laughs) And like, you know, just going and doing stuff for the culture and, and going to the history and getting that, you know, that nook and cranny type of stuff of being right there. So we could see the artists in that area, hip hop, you know, the culture and stuff like that. So you've been, you've had access working at MTV, Vice, Fader, um, a bunch of different places, and you've had access and been able to interview and work with so many different people. But what, how do, how was the experience interviewing the people for this film for you, though?
1: Um, you know, I love interviews. I love interviewing people. It's why, you know, when I was DJing uh, on the radio in the early 90s, I was also simultaneously writing for regional rap magazines, you know. Um, you know, in college, doing a radio show, had was part of this label, Soul Sides, was writing for the Bomb Hip Hop Magazine and Herb, and then later, you know, The Source and Vibe and XL and, And for me, it was, you know, interviews have always been amazing just to do. So, you know, I love interviewing people. You know, for this film, it was really working with Amir to prep him for the interviews, Uh, but also the the footwork of finding people and doing pre-interviews and like seeing who has a real good story to tell, who will be good on camera. Um, You know, we're talking about people who went to this thing 50 years ago; they're in their 70s and 80s now, and you know, memories is is tough to access you know yeah. you we one person we interviewed you know um he he was conflating years you know his is remembering things didn't happen in sixty nine it was yeah. and it was tough, and it was you know so it was but yeah, i mean I love interviews, i love you know why I love writing why why i love- doing interviews in the nineties with with uh, for rap magazines was is like I got to talk to like my favorite rappers and <laughs> producers and and to hear their. To, I mean, can you imagine like, you know, I got to talk to Nas pre Illmatic, you know, yeah, on, have one song out, and it was like, yo, this is incredible. Um, you know, he's in he's in San Francisco for a promo tour, and it's like, you know, you get to spend forty five minutes talking to Nas about, you know, his process, like that. That's. Amazing. That's a, that's a, that's a feeling. And that's a, that's a, that's an act. Uh, It it taps into something that is just like, you you know, I'll never get tired of it. And what I'm doing now is very similar, you know, it's the same thing. It's just different format. Yeah, for sure.
0: So uh, let's get into uh, the segment I like to call questions from the audience. So I have a couple of questions. So, (laughs) Uh, You know, I think, believe you know these people. Uh, First one is, ask him to tell you the story of Soulside's birth of fire.
1: Soulside's birth of fire?
0: This is from B+, Brian Cross.
1: What is he he talking about? I don't know. (laughs) I thought you would know. (laughs) Soulside's birth of fire? Yeah,
0: I copied and pasted. I was like, okay, let me see.
1: (laughs) What? (laughs) I have no idea what he's talking about.
0: All right, B. I tried.
1: Uh... I, I will say this about Brian, though. So, so I'll I'll just talk a little bit about small sides real quick. So we, I I'm a I go to UC Davis. Um, you know, I've I my freshman year, I am I turn I'm a big fan of college radio in high school. Get to UC Davis, I'm listening to college radio. I hear this hip hop show. It's great. I'm like, okay, let me go down to the station and see who this person is. It's There's two people that had a show. There's a, a woman named Voodoo Child um, who had a show and there's DJ Zen. And I went down uh, and it was Voodoo Child was doing her show. She let me sit in the studio and I was like, this is cool. And the next week I went to DJ Zen's show and DJ Zen is Jeff Chang. Oh. And and so, and I started just hanging out at his show and, and, and then these other freshmen were also hanging out at his show. Uh, they were, you know, lyrics born who at the time was Asia born who grew up at <laughs> Berkeley and chief Excel, who, who was from, I think he was from Southern California. No, he was from Southern California. Yeah. And then, um, you know, we started, we were at the radio station and like circling around each other and. Listening to records in the listening room is had this incredible music library. Um, shout out Marta Alveas, the music director at the time, who just built this incredible music library. And you know, we that's how SoulSide's formed. Is we were uh-huh. we were we all gravitated toward G.J. Zen's radio show. And Jeff was a mentor to me. He was, you know, he I was a knucklehead kid who didn't have a lot of experience in the world. And he taught me a lot. And then he he was writing for magazines and he got me into writing for magazines. And like, you know, and he taught me about how me, the music wasn't, the, the, the biggest lesson he taught me is that the music wasn't independent of the communities that made it. Nice. Yep. That, that is that is the spirit of hip hop. For
0: sure. It,
1: there's, there's the spirit of hip hop is is making something out of nothing, but it's also that the music is a reflection of community, not... Even as an art form, it's still a reflection of a community. It doesn't mean it has to be an honest representation. It's still art, but the the hip hop is about communities, and and they and they're, and you can't have one without the other, and and that's maybe the biggest lesson that I I learned um, from him. The other lesson I learned from him is that everything is political, right? Like nothing, yeah. everything is politics. It's about how we organize and activate and 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 fight, you know, so that was a real transformational experience for me. And, you know, B Plus obviously at the time is I'm writing when I started writing for magazines, Brian was taking photos to accompany my stories in herb. And I just it was like his photographs are incredible. Yeah. And he's an incredible photographer. And you know, him him and Jeff Chang were were really tight and that's how I met B and um, you know, this is just the whole crew of people that 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 I got introduced to from that. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, there it is, B. But if you saw about <laughs> birth of fire, like I don't I, like now. I'm like, am I just too old and I don't remember? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get okay.
0: care of cl- clarification afterwards. Okay. <laughs> next, next question. Um, I'm sure you have several, but tell us about one of your favorite interviews, interactions, or projects that you worked on in the past. And this is by our episode 14 guest, Mona Lisa.
1: Ah, I love her. <laughs> um, uh I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's every i i remember almost every interview i've ever done and they're all exciting um you know uh interviewing de la soul for the first time like interviewing Blackstar for the cover of herb uh in ninety eight maybe nine or ninety eight ninety nine um you know, actually, my, my interview with Amir, how I met Amir is uh, memorable because I'm still feeling the effects of it. Like, I my first cover story was 1996 for Rap Hages magazine. It was on The Roots. It was also their first cover story. Uh... And I was living in the Bay. I was living at my parents' house uh, post-college. And... Um, I got flown out to Philadelphia to interview the Roots. I loved the Roots. Um, I get to Philly. I interview them. Amir says, well, you know, rather than go back to your hotel, like, just come hang. Mm. And we hung out walking down South Street. uh, And it's late summer, I think. So it's, like, really hot and sticky outside. (laughs) And he's been up since, like, 5 in the morning doing photo shoots and uh, doing my interview with the band and, and then so we're just walking around South Street we we walked down to his house in South Philly and you know he's living in a house with like eight other people and um, <laughs> and we it's clear that we're we were he, I mean Mir is special in that he he knew my byline before I even met him because oh, really? he, he just absorbed rap magazines I got it so he he would ask, he was asking me about stories I reviews I had written that he had read and we get back to his place and it's like it's like late and he's he he puts on some music uh, while he's cleaning up his 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 room and we're just talking about music and and what he's playing me is he had just met D'Angelo a few months before mm. and when D'Angelo met they just jammed for like two hours. And he's playing me like this jam that they were doing. And it's just like, it's just Amir on drums and D'Angelo on keyboard and voice. And I'm just like transfixed. And then we sat on his stoop of his building. And it was like four in the morning and we ordered cheesesteaks and we're eating cheesesteaks. <laughs> Amazing. Like, and it just was like this. And, and we became friends from that moment forward. Like, and, and that, and I've known him ever since. And, and the fact that we're working together 25 years later is crazy. Amazing. Uh, but even, but there's so many. Like I, I am one of these people that like pack rat. I, every interview I've ever done, I have on cassette. I I've lab, properly labeled the date where it was. I have transcripts of all those interviews. Like I, I was that. archiving that shit as as it was happening, and I need to digitize all of it and and like start to do something with it. But
0: that's amazing. I love having that shit. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing um okay let's get into the not so rapid fire questions aka the slow as hell questions
1: oh so so i those are supposed to be rapid fire questions and i did not make them rapid fire. No, no, questions.
0: The, these are about to be but they're okay. not <laughs> the, for, that was questions from the audience uh so b plus i think it was awesome because maybe you don't remember what he was talking about but you talked lovely about him because he's a yeah, he's, he's a fantastic person um that also a... d'angelo uh if you're listening to this, it'll probably be post, but uh, D'Angelo at Apollo for verses I'm excited. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: um, okay, three words to describe yourself.
1: Oh, uh, oof, oof. Um, <laughs> uh, hum- humbled in my old age. <laughs> uh, there are not three words. I'm just going to describe myself in three different okay. ways. <laughs> humbled, in, Humbled in my old age. Um constantly learning. Uh, if I'm not constantly learning, I'm done. Just pack it in. And really grateful. I'm just grateful. Like I'm grateful that um you know we're all just specks on specks of dust, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm just grateful that like I've um had incredible experiences in my life and career. I'm grateful that I'm still getting opportunities. I'm grateful to have met so many amazing people, yourself included, oh, Brian Cross, Mona Lisa, like so many people, like just dope people. And you know, I'm just I'm just forever grateful for that. Um, you know, my, being a child of immigrants, Indian immigrants, um, my parents had. Their friends' kids, you know, they wanted me to be a lawyer, doctor, engineer, banker. Their friends' kids did all those traditional things. I did not. I caused my parents a lot of agony, I'm sure. But, I, you know, at some point it clicked for my parents that I was living a life that you couldn't buy. Yeah. And, and, and when they understood that and they were really, um, you know, they, that acknowledgement meant a lot to me. Uh and uh and you know it's and I'm just continue to be grateful for 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 these experiences.
0: Awesome, man. That's that's beautiful. What's the best piece of advice you've received?
1: <clears throat> best piece of advice I've received. Um <laughs> let's see. Uh I don't know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really take advice very well. Uh, I don't remember who gave it to me, but uh, someone gave me the advice at some point where not everything has to happen all at once right away. Mm. Right? Like, like you know, you, you go into a new job and you think you can make impact and change and affect the place. It doesn't all happen all at once. You've got to almost like sort of scam your way through it <laughs> you know you have to like earn their trust and then and then flip the script a little bit but like, you know when I was young I was just like you know oh I'm gonna I'm gonna go there I'm gonna do this I'm gonna change everything overnight and it's like someone told me, it's like change doesn't happen all at once it happens incrementally and that, sure. that was a really good piece of advice
0: yeah for sure next one what are you doing to dismantle the patriarchy
1: <laughs> um probably not enough. Uh but in my very small way, um you know, so I after working at MTV, I went on to a series of um sort of uh high level content jobs at Vice, uh the relaunched MySpace, Fader, Vivo, and one of the things that I'm really spent a lot of time making an effort doing is um, dismantling and reinventing ways in which to to give people opportunities, uh, non-white people, women, um, you know, being in a position of power where I could actually affect that that change. Uh, and then having to convince the the sort of execs above me that I knew what I was doing, but also that it's it's valuable, mm. right? You got to play a little dance a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so, in my very small way, uh, that is something that I consciously make an effort to do. And you know, for I'll give you an example. Um, you know, at MTV when I was working there, the interns every summer were all. The same variations on the same theme,
2: yeah, but
1: rich white kids, yeah. And I was like, Why are we always getting these rich white kids? And it was like, Oh, it's because who else can afford to live in New York and work for free in the summer? That's real. And I was like, Okay, well, if that's the case, then why don't we go to local colleges in the outer boroughs and recruit them to intern? You know, I was when I I tried to get an internship at MTV when I was in college, and you know, you think it's this like fortress that you have to penetrate, but it's not. It's just who you know. So, you know, we put signs up and recruitment letters at local colleges and started changing the complexion of the people that were interning at MTV News and Docs. Nice. Um, Later at the Fader, I was hiring for, I was building a video department from scratch for them in 2014, and I was like, you know, the 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 person who was helping me was like, okay, I put all the I got all the resumes in, and they're in two stacks. One are the college graduates, which I'll put on your desk, and the non-college graduates, I'll I'll, I'll throw away. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Why do you need a college degree to be a videographer? Right. Why do you need a college degree to be an editor? Like, that's not how I want to sift through. You know, that's not the way to sift through these resumes. There is a way to sift through resumes. You have to, or else it's impossible but that's not the fa- variable that I want to factor in. I want to know who do, who who really wants to do this. Right? It doesn't matter that they have a college degree or not. It doesn't matter that they um you know have experience or not. I want to know who who when there's when you're trying to make something and you're uh, and it's been a long day, who wants to be there, you know, yeah. because they love it, not because it's a job. So so in very small ways, that's, I'm trying to, like, just, because it's hard. If people, Hiring biases is a real thing. Like, yeah. hiring biases is a real thing. People, consciously or not, they hire people who mimic experiences, life experiences that are like theirs. And and that's why you can throw a rock and hit 50 white hip-hop music video director dudes. Yeah. And there a, many of them are talented, but, like, it takes actual work and effort and time and consciousness to create space for black women to direct hip-hop videos, mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, non-white um people in general, just to create to be in that space in these media jobs and it takes actual work and effort. So that's my small contribution to the the fight.
0: And and I don't feel it's a small contribution. I feel it's a huge contribution because, like you said, from your advice, those are the steps needed to make big, large change, you know? So thanks for that. Next one. Song to get you hyped when you need it.
1: Uh, (laughs) So this is actually real. So during this whole process of making this film, I would – you know, there's been like key, like big interviews that we had to do that I was a little nervous before doing them, right? Stevie Wonder or, or like, or like, uh, um, who else did we interview? Like Charlene Hunter Galt, like, uh, or, you know, before the Sundance screening, before the panel, like uh, Mob Deep, infamous album. I just put that, that's it. I, on the headphones, on, on <laughs> I just, I listened to that. And then when I'm trying to feel like, um, uh, Sort of like getting a better, like, headspace, a more positive headspace, not so worried. Uh, the song Power Show by Fela, the long version, which just sounds like summer to me. Ugh. And it just makes me feel open. So,
2: That's
1: those are two very real examples from the last few months.
0: I love that. I love to hear people's hype songs. And the last of these slow as questions What will be your legacy, Jazzbo?
1: I don't. I don't know if I will have one. I really like. I said we're all just specks of dust. I think the only thing you can do is help people as much as you can, and the people around you, and have that echo out. I tell everybody that I. You know, I try to. I try to give time to people coming up, but I tell them you have to give time to people coming up once you've made it. Well, that's it. That's all we can do. Yeah. I. It's a. I, I'm. I'm not, I'm, I don't, I, you know, just, I want to know that I help somebody.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: And I, that person helps somebody too. And that person helps somebody and that person helps somebody. That's it. That's all we can do.
0: Yeah. You've done that. And you, and this is just, I feel like it's not even the middle or anything. Like, I feel like you're just beginning to do like new chapters of other ways that you're, you know, the reach back. You know, the reach back and pulling up and then those people keep reaching back and pulling up. And I I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, Before we leave, thank you so much for your time.
1: I wanted to talk
0: about Contact High because I was like, (laughs) I was like, let me drive from Palm Springs into and I I made a whole thing of it. I was like, let me meet my home girl. Let's go see Contact High. Take that in. And then right after that, um, we went to have dinner and then we went to go see um, Princess. Maya uh, Rudolph's.
2: Yeah, thing. yeah. It was oh, like cool. a
0: whole thing. So it was like hip hop, seeing my entire youth, you <laughs> know what I'm saying? These amazing photos in the exhibit. So tell the people about the exhibit and um, which is in Dubai now, right?
1: No, it's in Abu Dhabi. Oh,
0: Abu Dhabi. Yeah. And then, so and then how, you, how you're a part of that.
1: So Contact High is a book uh, started by Vicky Toback, uh, a longtime friend of mine, um, who... Uh, when I was in the Bay, used to work at. She used to work at Payday Records, and oh. she would come out with like Shone A.G. or Gangstar or j Roo and and bring them on their West Coast promo run. Mm. Uh, that's how I met her. And all these years later, again, community, right? <laughs> this is all community. All these years later, I was reading. She had a column at Mass Appeal called Contact Eye, where she would look at famous photographs, and the contact sheets around those photos, and tell use that to tell the story. And it was not just the story of the photograph. Ultimately, it became the story of the photographer, the artist, the 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 press people around them that you saw on the contact sheets, and the story of the day or the location. So it's so this is like rich jumping-off point for hip hop storytelling. And I approached her, and I was like, "I think this is a TV series." Mm-hmm. And she's like, "Well, I'm working on a book." And I'm like, "I want to work with you on 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 turning this into a TV series." So. That was five years ago,
0: okay.
1: and uh, we had sushi lunch, and I was telling her my, 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 I said, and I was at Vivo at the time, and I was like, I don't want to do it for Vivo. I think it could be something that we could pitch to, like, make real TV. So she put out the book. The book is incredible. Along with the book came Annenberg uh, uh, Center for um, Space for Photography. They wanted to do an exhibit. So um, she did the exhibit. I helped her out a little bit with that. Um, you know, included a couple of my favorite photographers' personal favorites, Ravy B and Sam Balaban. Um Ravy has the Jay-Z and Beyonce photo. Uh, and Sam has this incredible Mac Miller portrait from a, a few weeks before he died. Mm-hmm. Um, and And Vicky and I are partners. so she she's it's her book, her exhibit. She's the creative force behind that. I am uh, I've been helping her out with the subsequent exhibition in New York um before the pandemic we created a new one to to be international which is the one that's in abu dhabi right mm. now um and we're not ready to announce it yet but I'll give you the <laughs> <laughs> exclusive uh, but after many years of trying to pitch this around we're finally going to be making a contact high feature documentary Dump. Uh, yeah that uh she'll be executive producing i will be directing and no excuse. um excuse yeah we're gonna we're gonna hopefully get into that real soon actually probably start in a few weeks
0: amazing that's amazing news um I don't know her like I know of her but I don't know her but especially when this came out and I was like seeing who was a part of it and you know her and stuff like that and I was like yes you know what I'm saying just like having her put this together uh with her history and everything like that I mean the exhibit was it was a time machine. It was like you know, you yeah. open that the 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 time capsule to so many different and then also seeing the behind the scenes because you see some of the like she said the the contact um, uh, photos and stuff like that. So that that was dope, and I'm so happy. I can't wait
1: to see yeah, what Big, you guys Biggie's do. Niggie's dope. dope. She you know she's a immigrant child of immigrants. You know, food grew up on food stamps in Detroit and moved to New York as a teenager. Um, and is just like this quintessential story of like New York being a home. Yeah. Um, you know, she found her, she, you know, she, she's, she was way, way too hip for my taste. Like, like if <laughs> I, knew, like she's, I say, what I mean by that is that she's, she was very, very down from the, from the minute she stepped foot in New York City. Um, you know was a door door, door girl at Nell's back in the day wow. you know she she was promoting parties uh, I think the launch of supreme was a party she promoted like wow. she's she's wow. a cool kid too cool for me sometimes but, <laughs> but 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 what she's what she's done with contact high I think is again another way to tell stories that fall through the cracks yeah and I think it's it's a really cool project so
0: awesome man jazzbo Joseph Patel jazz busy <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank, thank you so, you so much. much this was a lot of fun and i um I'm, it's i'm it's a wonder why anyone wants to talk to me at all but you, you you are the homie and um and i appreciate appreciate you wanting to talk to me
0: thank you for doing it i know you're busy so gracias and everybody see the fucking movie i'll have links to all the shit we talked about um and i'll let you know thank you Do you want to support original content that supports diverse voices? Why not support Word to Your Mama? You're listening to it right now. Become a patron. Head over to patreon.com WTYM. There are four patron levels to choose from, including good looking out, I'm down, hell yeah, and please believe it. Benefits include patron shout-outs, exclusive patron-only content, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com WTYM to take your support to the next level. Gracias.
2: And now, introducing... The Supernatural Bear Corner. Supernatural Bear. Yo, yo, yo. What up, everybody? Um, this is just... I'm not doing the song or anything, but there's this new series called City of Ghosts. It is a very cool, very awesome new series, and it's half documentary, half animation. I think it's very cool, and I think you should go watch it because it's all about L.A. So especially if you live in L.A. or your family lives in L.A. or you used to live in L.A., as I did, then you'll love this. You will love it. Also, it has some of the cutest animation I've ever seen without being too chibi. I'm talking to you chibi.
0: Where can people find it?
2: You can find it, and you can only find it exclusive style.
0: <laughs> yes, to keep going.
2: Okay. As on <laughs> Netflix. You can only find it on Netflix. Because it's a Netflix and original, and you can't see Netflix originals with other apps but um yeah i hope you guys have an awesome time watching it and uh this has been the smb 16 peace should we do yeah
0: so yeah episode 23 jazz good times and like I was saying it it really is good for the soul it was great reconnecting I look forward to building even more but just you know I'm talking about like on a human level just the good energy good folks um he's done so much and he's always giving back and he's always sharing the knowledge and just uh just good peeps man it was a good one and uh I concur with the supernatural bear city of ghosts um I heard that coming up in the next couple episodes, tearjerkers, but it is super cute, super well done. Uh, you learn a lot about the different neighborhoods in L.A., and I, I really love the Ghost Crew, and you'll understand when uh, you watch it, so definitely recommend that. But, yeah, you know, if you checked out the episode before, episode 22, we had award Emmy Award-winning Linda Morrell, and she's a producer. She won an Emmy for Key and Peele. And then, boom, today we got Jazzbo over here. So producer, producer, the doobly doob over here. Um, yeah, so it's uh, we're on episode 23. We're chugging along. I really love doing this. So support any way you can. Leave those reviews. Spread the word. Tell your folks. Tell your friends. And as always, we reap. Word to Your Mama is owned and produced by Ritz P. Theme music produced by the great Nico Beats. And as always, Word to Your Mama is brought to you by RitzP.com and PanoplyBPO.com.